Heavenly Father, it's by Your grace and mercy that You speak these truths to us. Otherwise, we, like those who are outside of Christ, would not understand what it means that You are saving many by Your grace and You are, you are and will judge many who refuse Your grace. I ask, Lord, that as we look at Revelation 10 this morning and we see this message giving to, given to the Apostle John that you would equip us as your children to be faithful apostolic messengers, that we would hear and understand what you so clearly communicated to the Apostle so long ago, and that we would, with our mouths, proclaim it to this world in which we live. We are surrounded, Father, by those who do not know Christ. We have family, we have friends, we have co-workers and neighbors who have never heard the gospel. I pray, Father, that you would use this beautiful church for your glory to that end, that we would, as we hear the teaching today, as we take in the bittersweet gospel testimony that promises to save all who repent and believe and simultaneously promises to judge those who reject Christ, that we would, with our mouth, proclaim these truths regardless of the consequences. Father, we are a silent church and we are a silent people and there's no place for that type of silence in your kingdom. And so be gracious with us this morning. Give us courage, Father, to be great heralders of this difficult message. I pray, Lord, that in this hour, your Spirit would equip us to that end, not only with understanding, but with a desire to be faithful to it. We ask that, Lord, for all those in our mission field. We ask it, Lord, for those that we support in the mission field throughout the world so that many can hear, many can be warned, and by your grace be saved. Do that for them and do it for us, Father, that we might be faithful to this calling, displaying our love for you amidst those who do not love you. I ask these things in Christ's holy name. Amen. Amen. We're halfway through the book of Revelation, and if you've been with us thus far, I'm very, very thankful. Um, I was sharing with our community group on Wednesday night, it's a rough road till we get to chapter 20. Um, it, there's a lot of dialogue here that will take place that's revealing the type of judgment that is upon us and the judgment that is to come. Um, one of the reasons that we as a church faithfully preach and teach through God's word verse by verse and chapter by chapter and book by book is because you generally would not preach on these teachings. These are hard things to hear, um, but we're very thankful that we have the full counsel of God, and so we want to hear it and submit to it, and I pray that's your desire as well. Uh, the title of the sermon is Apostolic Messengers, and that certainly is us. We're supposed to be teaching and preaching that which God clearly revealed to the apostles, and in this particular chapter, to the apostle John. Now, for the last two weeks, we've been talking about the trumpets. And if you remember, uh, we did the first four trumpets, which dealt with God's judgment through the natural order. And then last week, we looked at trumpet number five and number six, and we saw how God will be judging the world, the unbelievers, those who do not know Christ. He'll be judging them by using demons by bringing misery and death upon them in real time. And so you get to chapter 10 and you expect fully, you should expect to hear the seventh trumpet, 
right? Just like we heard in the seventh seal, we have a reiteration of the seven seals, and we expect to hear this story now come to an end. Um, But we don't get that. What we get instead is what's called a literary interlude. And that's a fancy way of saying John's got some information that he wants to share with us, some details that he's going to squeeze in between trumpet number six and the final trumpet number seven, which brings God's redemptive story to a close. And so actually we're going to see this week and next when we get through Revelation chapter 11 and verse 14, details that he wants us to know. And there's a single theme that he's trying to reveal to us. And that is that we too are to be messengers of this message. The message that God gave to the Apostle John, John has given to the church, and we, the church, are to proclaim it faithfully to the world. In other words, it's a magnification of the prophetic ministry of the body of Christ, that we cannot, in our obedience to God, be silent people. We cannot do it individually, and we cannot as a church. Now, immediately, you're probably thinking, oh, this is one of those sermons where he's going to tell me to go out and do that which my flesh does not want to do. Not me, but the Word of God. And yes, that's what the Word of God is going to tell you this morning. To go out and proclaim that which your flesh does not want to proclaim. I would like to encourage you this morning so that we have clarity on what the message is, and I want to encourage you with the power of the Spirit that reigns in you to faithfully proclaim it. To all those in your mission field, those who have never heard the message before, and there are many in this area, and those who have heard it but have rejected it and need to hear it again. So let's do that right now. Let's, let's be encouraged to understand and proclaim by looking at three truths about this particular message. This particular message is, number one, it is a faithful message. That means it's trustworthy. It is a bittersweet message, which means there are two sides to it. And number three, it is a dangerous message, meaning if you faithfully proclaim it, you're probably going to get in trouble. You're probably going to get in trouble. Um, But that's a good thing if you're being obedient to the living God. The theme is this. We proclaim God's word without fear because God's son suffered our greatest fears. We proclaim God's word as hard as it is, as dangerous as it is, because God's son has suffered our greatest fear, which is eternal damnation. Amen? All right, are you with me? Now, don't be tired on me. We just got started here. All right, so let's, let's engage fully. We want to understand it. It's a little bit cryptic, I know. Um, much of Revelation is, but um, I promise you it's not that complicated. So point number one, this message is a faithful message. Look at verse one. This is John speaking now. He is still experiencing the vision of the Lord. He said, Then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven, wrapped in a cloud with a rainbow over his head, and his face was like the sun and his legs like pillars of fire. That's quite a description, is it not? I mean, that's that's an amazing angel. And it is. It's intended to magnify the glory of this angel coming from God and having the authority and power of God. And some of these descriptive terms you probably are, are familiar with. I mean, he, he comes in a cloud and a rainbow. And you think, oh, cl- cloud, I, I know that. That's, that's the glory cloud in the Old Testament. That's the same cloud that led the Israelites by day when they spent their 40 years in the desert. And that's the Shekinah glory cloud that would descend upon the tabernacle and the temple. So this, this represents the presence of God. 
And, and that rainbow also, that, that's the same vision that Ezekiel had of the four living creatures. They had this glorious image of a rainbow over their head, which also revealed the presence and authority and power of God upon them. And then certainly you say, well, his face was like the sun. That sounds just like Moses. Moses came down from Mount Sinai and he had what? He had the Shekinah glory on him. In fact, his face radiated so much the people of Israel said what? Put a covering on your head, man. We can't look at you. The glory is too much for us. And then, of course, this angel's legs were like pillars of fire. And you go, I know that too. The pillar of fire by night that led the Israelites through the desert. The presence of God. Right, So the imagery is simple. It is revealing that this angel came directly from God and has the authority and power of God on him. So he's speaking on God's behalf. Not confusing, is it? It's not. Look at verse 2. This glorious angel that John sees had a little scroll open in his hand and he said his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land. Now remember, we're in apocalyptic genre So it's not like this angel had great flexibility and was able to stretch his legs. We're we're picturing here something that's symbolic. And the symbolism, again, is quite simple. He puts one foot on the land and one foot on the sea because he's going to swear. He's going to take an oath by land, by sea, by heaven itself that God will what? That God's going to faithfully fulfill his plan. He's going to make this declaration. Land and sea. That this... Redemptive story will come to pass exactly as God had prophesied through the prophets of the Old Testament. So this angel standing there, uh, John sees this little scroll open in his hand. He says, oh, wait a minute. Uh, we, know that we know about scrolls now. Now this is a little different. This scroll is not sealed like the other one that only the Lamb of God could take. This one's open, and it contains the prophetic words that John is going to be required to continue to preach. The rest of what we have in the book of Revelation is inside this little scroll. And so there's more revelation. You said, oh, that's great. I like more revelation. I I hope so. I hope that you're encouraged by hearing more and more about how God's going to finish his great story. So it's it's more revelation, but it's not every detail. Look at verse 3. The angel called out with a loud voice, so he's straddling land and sea like a lion roaring. And so that's just, that sounds like God, right? The, 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 the roaring lion of God, he's speaking on God's behalf, reminding us of the importance of what's going to be said here. When he, the angel, called out, the seven thunders sounded. And he says, the seven thunders, that's amazing. Who are they? What did they say? We have no idea. Oh, there are lots of speculation. There's so much speculation on this, which is fascinating to me. Because the angel tells John what? Don't write it down. So we're not supposed to know. Oh, yet we want to know, right? Curious minds want to know. And so we speculate what the thunders are, who the thunders are, what they said. We have no idea. That's great preaching, isn't it, right there? Say, how long did you study that? How long did it take you to come to that conclusion? We know that seven represents fullness. We know thunder in the Old Testament usually would represent the majesty and the wrath of God. So it it likely has something to do with the the, the revelation of God's majesty and his power and his judgment. But we don't know who's who's speaking. We don't know who the seven thunders are and we don't know what they've said. That said, we do know something extraordinary. Look at verse four. When the seven thunders had sounded, I was about to write... But I heard a voice from heaven saying, seal up 
what the seven thunders have said and do not write it down. Now remember, he was commanded at the beginning of the book to what? To write down everything that he saw and heard except here. Except here, this voice from heaven says, don't write it down. Now, my beloved, listen. That means that we need to be very, very humble when it comes to understanding how God finishes his story. We know fundamental things about how the the plan of redemption comes to a close. But there are details, there are details of this plan that we do not know. There are details that are hidden from us by God himself. And therefore, we must approach this with great humility. There are surprises yet to be seen that have not been written down in the word of God. So if you think you have this real tight understanding of every detail of how God's plan ends, then I I want to burst your bubble for you. You don't. We don't. Um, So for for those of you who have come out of the dispensational camp, or maybe you're still there, um, we have our dispensational friends, they have these what are called prophecy charts you've ever seen a prophecy chart, it has fantastic detail of the exact dates and the exact times and the exact people and the exact nations that are going to play their way out until Christ comes again in glory. They're amazing, and I would say they're fundamentally wrong. Not only because I think that that eschatology is wrong, but we don't have that type of detail in the text. Revelation doesn't provide it. Daniel does not provide it. Ezekiel does not provide it. And so a lot of it is speculative and I would argue just plain made up. The book of Revelation instead gives us a big outline. It's a big picture of big events that are going to happen with many of the details hidden from us. John did not write these things down because God said do not write them down. Okay? So if you have a prophetic dispensational chart hanging up in your room, you can take that down. Just take that down for me. So there are things that are hidden, but the big things are not. Look at verse 5. And the angel whom I saw standing on the sea and the land raised his right hand to heaven. So he's going to take an oath. He's going to swear. Verse 6. He swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven, what is in it, the earth, what is in it, the sea, what is in it, that there would be no more delay. And so this fantastic angel straddle over sea and land, raises his right hand, and he's going he's gonna to say something. He's going to swear something, and he's going to swear it on the name of God himself, the creator of the heavens and the earth. And his statement's extraordinary. And again, it's simple. He's saying, no more delay. The trumpets are being blown. God's story is coming to an end. Now, this is almost identical to what an angel did with the prophet Daniel in Daniel chapter 12, except the message was a little different. Then the angel said, a little bit longer. Listen to this, Daniel chapter 12, verse 7. He, an angel, raised his right hand, very similar, and his left hand toward heaven and swore by him who lives forever that it would be for a time, times, and a half time that these things would be finished. So the prophecy of Daniel was it's going to take a little bit longer. This angel standing before John is saying it's happening right now. God's story is drawing to a close. In other words, these are, as we've been saying all along, these are the last days. These are the last days. Look at the latter part of verse 6 again. That there would be no more delay. But in the days of the trumpet call, 
to be sounded by the seventh angel, the mystery of God would be fulfilled just as he announced to his servants, the prophets. Of course, those are the prophets of the Old Testament. And so unlike the angel in Daniel, the angel saying, right now, God's story is coming to an end. The trumpets are being blown, and we should expect Christ to return. So that time period between Jesus ascending being resurrected and ascending to heaven and is coming again in glory is on up, upon us now. These are the last days. These are the days of the trumpets. And therefore, we are to not only know that, but to be excited about the film fulfillment of it. We must know that this is the time. The prophets prophesied to this time, and we must be excited that it is coming to a close. The seventh trumpet by the seventh angel will complete the story. And, and the, the important piece that the angel is revealing to John, the apostle John, is that it cannot be stopped. That this story is in motion. And we're in the midst of the end of it. Now what a, what a glorious truth for John to hear. And I would say a glorious truth for the church to hear as well. That this story of God's redeeming of sinful man, that, that he will save his people, that he will judge, justice will reign upon the earth, that he will restore completely this broken creation, that it is and it will come to pass. It is guaranteed. That means, listen, this message that John has received from the angel that came directly from God is that there's no ifs, no ands, no buts to the message of the gospel. God is faithful. This mighty, sinless angel straddling land to sea is able to swear by his name that this story will end exactly as God had decreed. Not only because he's the creator of all that is seen and unseen, so he has the power, but because he is faithful and he's already spoken these truths. Right? He, he did not lie to the prophets of old. The prophets of old, Ezekiel, Daniel, they prophesied to this. Therefore, it must come to pass. It is guaranteed fulfillment. So how does that help us? How does it help you to know? Remember, you're supposed to be an apostolic messenger. You're supposed to take these truths to a dead and dying world. How does it help you to know that the story, the message, is 100% true and guaranteed to take place and is taking place even in our midst. How should that help us? Well, I would argue, my beloved, that if you truly believe, if you are 100% positive that something's going to take place in the future, I mean, you know it. You absolutely perfectly know it. And you know that that message, that, that event is going to impact others for better or worse. I would argue you'd be more eager to speak to it You'd be more eager to tell others about it. If you were 100% sure, zero doubts. If, for example, you found out that you knew, you had inside information that your, your friend's plane that's flying out of San Francisco to New York is going to crash, you know this is going to happen. I would argue that you would be diligent in pursuing your friend and telling your friend not to get on that plane, and you would go so far as to call that airline and talk to those pilots and every passenger, if necessary, saying, don't get on that plane, it will crash, you will die. Would you not, if you knew, or would you just say, yeah, they can figure it out? Of course not. You'd be compelled, you'd be eager to share that message. 
in the midst of this last storm, if I knew that a tree was gonna fall upon my neighbor's house and that tree was gonna come in and possibly do that family damage and I knew that was gonna happen, I would go next door, would I not? Unless I'm just a cruel, evil, lazy man, I would go next door and say, hey, that tree's gonna come down on your house. I know that, you gotta get out. And if you resisted, what would I do? I would drag them out. And then when the tree fell and collapsed the house and they lived, they would be thankful, would they not? They would. My beloved, this angel is only affirming what we already know to be true. God is faithful. He has promised to bring this redemptive story to an end. He will judge and he will save. He will judge eternally those who reject Christ and he will save eternally all those united to Christ. There's no ifs, ands, or buts about this message. It is true. It is taking place and it will be fulfilled. So point number one, I hope that I've convinced you successfully that you should have zero doubt about this message being true. And because you know it is true, you will be eager to share it with others. Amen? All right. So first we see in our, inter- our literary interlude the faithfulness of the message that John and the church have been given to proclaim. It's guaranteed to take place. Point number two, This message, one of the reasons that we struggle with it is because it is a bitter, sweet message. It's a bitter, sweet message. Look at verse eight. John is again speaking, then the voice that I heard from heaven, the same voice that said, don't write down anything about the seven thunders. Same voice heard from heaven, spoke to John again saying, go, take the scroll that is open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. So the same voice tells him, go and, and take that scroll. Now, we already, we already saw how only the Lamb of God was able to go and take the scroll out of the Father's hand and open up the seals because he's the only one to fulfill. He was the only one able to fulfill its contents, right? So in similar fashion here, we have something taking place that only the Apostle John and then the church could fulfill as part of the commission of God's redemptive plan. And that is God commissioning John, and as a result of John, the apostolic church, that's us, to proclaim what's inside this scroll. What's written down in this scroll that John's going to take and eat has been given to us as well, that we might be faithful proclaimers of it. It belonged to John, it, belonged to, it belongs to the apostolic church. Look at verse 9. John says, so I went to the angel and I told him to give me the little scroll. It's such a, I just see John, here's this angel straddling land and sea. Give me that scroll that's in your hand. Well, he had that authority because he was told by a voice from heaven to do so. So he does, very brave. <laughs> and he, the angel, said to me, take and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. Verse 10, and I took the little scroll from the hand of the angel and ate it. It was sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. Now, this may sound strange to us, but the Apostle John knew the Old Testament well, and we have virtually an identical scenario playing out with the prophet Ezekiel. What made, what made this message both bitter and sweet? The prophet Ezekiel, centuries early, was also given a scroll and told to what? Told to eat it. Told to eat it. I know, the image we think, he's eating paper. He's just, no. It's, it's imagery, right? It's metaphoric. It's symbolic. Try really hard not to be so literal, okay? Ezekiel, chapter three, similar situation. 
He was told to eat the scroll, eat the scroll, and go and what? Speak to the house of Israel. So I opened my mouth, and he gave me this scroll to eat. Then I ate it, and it was in my mouth, sweet as honey. Right, so the imagery is that the scroll, which proclaims the message, which is to be declared, goes into the mouth and into the stomach, and then comes back out the mouth again, right? So John takes it in, John believes it, Ezekiel took it in, Ezekiel believed it, and then they're supposed to go out and, and tell it to others. Hence the eating. The prophet Jeremiah had a similar experience, Jeremiah 15, 16. Your words were found, Jeremiah says, I ate them. Not literally. I ate them, your words became to me a joy and the delight of my heart. And so by John taking in the scroll and eating the scroll, just like Ezekiel and just like Jeremiah, it's honey in his mouth. There's a sweet taste to it because this this is the closing of God's redemptive plan that God would, through Jesus Christ, save millions And so there's great joy in it. There's great delight that he's going to take this in and believe it and be saved and proclaim it. But it's not just sweet, is it? It's not just honey that he's going to experience. The angel said, it's also going to be bitter. It's going to make your stomach bitter because we know, my beloved, that not all will be saved. We know the message of the gospel, the message of salvation, also comes judgment. Judgment to all who refuse to repent and believe. In other words, what John and those who would follow, that's the church, were called to proclaim was a bitter, sweet message because it includes God's wrath. I would argue, my beloved, that if the gospel had nothing to do with God's justice, nothing to do with judgment, no wrath, no hell, you would all be telling everybody about it all the time, would you not? You talk about the grace of God and the humility of Jesus Christ on the cross and how you can be saved by grace, but you don't have to worry about it because there's no damnation and there's no judgment. I think we'd be a very vocal church. But because it is a bitter, sweet message, we, at times, become silent. Look at verse 11. John says, I was told, you must again prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. So just as Ezekiel took in the scroll and it was sweet as honey because the gospel of salvation was attached to us, there was also bitterness because he too had to prophecy against people, nations, languages, and kings. In other words, what makes the full message bitter to us is that there's judgment attached to it. You say, no, wait a minute, you told us that we're supposed to pray for God's justice. We are, we are, my beloved. And certainly, John wanted God's justice to come. He wanted it to be on earth as it is in heaven. We know that. But he also knew what we know. When God brings his justice, all those who are not in Christ will be what? They'll be judged. He knew that, John knew that. The church has known that for 2,000 years. When Jeremiah was told, to prophesy to Judah for their continued idolatry against God, to tell Judah that they were going to be judged. Jeremiah what? Jeremiah wept. He actually was, has been coined what? The weeping prophet. He had good company. Jesus, he came upon Jerusalem in the week of his persecution. And as he looked upon Jerusalem, A people, his people, who refused to hear the gospel, who refused to be saved, 
This is what we're told in Luke 19. And when Jesus drew near and saw the city, what did he do? He wept over it. He wept over it, saying this, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. That's the gospel. That's the sweet honey of the gospel. But now, he said, they are hidden from your eyes because you refuse to believe. And so Christ wept. Jeremiah wept. John's stomach is made bitter because of sadness. He had a weeping stomach, a, a, a sadness because those he knew those who did not repent and believe would perish. And yet, my beloved, his sadness could not overcome and did not overcome his faithfulness to God. Look at verse 11 again. John was told, you must, again, prophecy. Not optional. You must, like the prophets of old, like your Savior himself, you must tell the full gospel message. And that is, oh, that is the sweetness for anyone at any point in time. You can repent of your sins, you can turn to Christ, and you can be saved even this day. That's the sweetness of it. But that's not the whole message. The whole message includes God's justice and God judging all who refuse Christ. It was Jesus himself who said, listen, the full gospel message, John chapter 12. Jesus said, the one who rejects me does not receive my words. His, the words are his judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. In other words, my beloved, neither the message itself, the full message of the gospel, that many peoples, nations, and languages and kings will be judged, nor the proclamation of the message is optional for the church. We are not allowed, listen, I'll say this in love because this is from God. You're not allowed to change the message. And you're not allowed to not proclaim the message. We are given the clear message according to scripture. We know the full message and we are commanded by God to proclaim it to teach it, to preach it, to share it, to explain it to everyone and anyone who's willing to listen. To change it or to remain silent are both acts of grievous disobedience to the living God. I want you to imagine a nurse in your doctor's office. If you've had a doctor for a long time, then you probably know their staff pretty well. I know I do. And imagine that that nurse actually cares for you. You're not just a patient with a number. That nurse really cares for you. And you went in to get some blood work done because you've got some things going on in your body. And she got the blood work first. And the blood work indicates that you have a tumor growing in your body. A bad tumor. But because she loves you so much, she did not tell your doctor because she didn't want the doctor telling you and giving you the bad news. She didn't want the bitter news to come to your ears to make you sad. Now her professed love for you, whatever kind of love that is, is not true love at all. Because true love for that nurse would have been to tell the doctor, to tell you, so you could do something about this tumor. That you could actually have knowledge that you were in great danger. And maybe that doctor would say, we need to take some medicine or you need to have surgery. We need to treat this. We need to stop this tumor from growing so that you can live and not die. Well, my beloved, the church's failure to proclaim the full message of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that salvation and judgment are here and are coming, is only different in degree to the silent nurse. 
The nurse's failure as a messenger would have led to the physical death, your physical death. If she said nothing and the doctor did not know and that tumor continued to grow, you would die physically. The church's failure as a messenger of God leads to the spiritual death of millions. Many peoples, many nations, many languages, and many kings being judged because they've never heard the message that God gave to his church. My beloved, who... If not the church, who do you expect to tell the world that there's hope in Christ and there's judgment coming if we reject Christ? If not the church, who will tell the world? That message has been given to the apostles and to the apostolic church for us to declare the bittersweet message. Again, I say this in love, it is not optional for us. It wasn't optional for the apostles. They were messengers, apostolic messengers of God. It is not optional for the true church of Jesus Christ. We are to preach it. We are to teach it. We are to proclaim the bitter, sweet message. The full message. Tell them about the sweet honey. Tell them they don't have to remain in their sins. They don't have to die in their sins. That a Savior died for them. Tell them about Christ. Call them to repentance. Call them to faith. Tell them they can live today and forever. And tell them what happens if they don't. Tell them that judgment is already here. That if they refuse to put their faith in the Savior, the terrifying bitterness of the message is eternal damnation. Tell them it's here. Tell them it's coming. Now like our our well-meaning nurse, I do not believe that a true Christian silence is done from a malicious heart. I don't. I don't believe that we are silent, that we don't tell people because we want ill will for them. I don't think that's why we're silent. I think we're silent for probably one of two reasons or both. One, it's ignorance, or two, it's self-centeredness. We're silent because we're ignorant, or we're silent because we are self-centered. I think at times we, we fail to realize that the complete message is a message of love, Right, the message that John was given to declare to the world that justice and judgment is here and coming is a warning. It's a warning for us to tell those who don't know Christ to repent and believe before it's too late. It's a divine message of love for people to wake up so they can be saved before they take their last breath and enter into an eternity of judgment. I believe many well-meaning Christians foolishly think, I think that we think, some of us think this, that if we don't talk about it, if we don't teach it, if we don't proclaim it from the pulpits or in our homes or in our workplaces, that maybe, just maybe it won't happen. I mean, we do that a lot, don't we? We don't talk about things thinking, if we don't talk about it, then maybe it won't take place. We do this in marriages. We do this with our children. It's a fool's hope. Salvation by silence. Let's not talk about it and maybe judgment won't come. You must never forget that God is a perfectly holy and just God. He must judge every single sin without exception. And that means he will judge the individual for their sins or he will judge a substitute who is Christ. It's one or the other, but he will judge. This story ends exactly as God has decreed. Your silence will not prevent the judgment from coming, which you obviously know. You know if you don't talk about it, doesn't mean that it's not going to transpire. 
But I think a greater struggle that we have as a people, especially in the West, I think that we're silent just because we're selfish. I, I think it's really just a matter of self-centeredness and, and, and protecting ourselves. I mean, no one, no one wants to be the bearer of bad news, right? What happens to messengers? Well, in, in historic times, they were killed, right? You, you heard the adage, don't kill the messenger. Why did they? They were killed. They take the message, the people who received it didn't like it, so they'd kill the messenger. So no one wants to be the bearer of bad news. So what do we do? We preach and we teach partial gospels from Western pulpits. Right? I mean, there are many churches around here that you could go into their doors this morning and you could hear the sweetness of the gospel. You could hear about all the honey. I mean, you could, you could hear about the goodness and the grace and the mercy of God and how he shows loving kindness upon fallen man. And you could hear about all the blessings that will come to those who come to Christ. You will hear about his mercy upon the cross. But more often times than not, that sweet honey comes at the expense of the bitter truth that not all will be saved. That many, many will refuse Christ as their substitute. Many will refuse the grace and mercy that comes from the cross. Many will remain in rebellion and instead of receiving the honey of the gospel and the good news of a savior, they will receive the bitterness of eternal damnation and judgment. Churches in the West, we, we know the full gospel, the bitter, sweet word of God. We know it'll turn away the masses so we don't do it, right? We don't preach Revelation 10. Because if we do, you'll leave. And what we want more than anything else in the Western church are people in the pews. For better or for worse, we want churches that are full. And so we shy away from the bitter taste of talking about God's justice or the judgment that is on us and that is to come. The same holds true at an individual level, I do believe. We know... We know if we proclaim what John is receiving here, it's going to bring strife into our lives, do we not? And we know that. There's immediately going to be relational issues. It might be with your parents or your spouse or your children or your teachers. If we start talking about this full-orbed gospel message, the honey and the bitterness, well, it's going to, it might actually ruin some relationships that you currently have that you don't want ruined. It might be a career setback for you. You might not get that promotion. You might not retain your job if you're faithful to this message. If you're a student in a secular school, it might mean what? Lower grades for you. It might mean an F on your paper because you spoke the truth, even if done in love. You see, the world and its systems, they have no desire to hear about impending judgment. No one likes to receive this type of news. They don't want to hear what Jesus said in John 3.18, that the world, those who do not believe what? They stand condemned already because they refuse, Jesus says, to believe in me, the Son of God. So all you're saying when you're talking about the judgment of God is what's already upon the world. They stand condemned already because they refuse Christ. But the true Christian, I believe, has no desire for anyone to perish. The heart that's been captured by Christ wants none to perish. The true believer like Ezekiel, like Jeremiah, like John, like Jesus, we weep at this message. It causes us to be grieved in the proclamation of it. 
And so we do. We speak it with love and with tears, but we must speak it. We can't have the bitterness silence our lips. We must proclaim it nevertheless if we are going to be apostolic messengers. If we're going to be faithful to God, God gave us the message to proclaim. If we're going to be faithful, we must proclaim it. But we can do so in love, can we not? Can we not do so with great humility? Can you not do so with tears in your eyes as you tell your family member or your friend or your coworker, apart from Christ, you will perish? Have you? I know it's hard. Oh, it's hard. This is one of the harder things we talk about talking to that family member that's who, who's been in constant rebellion, talking to those friends that you love so much about God's judgment and the danger that is upon us and the danger to come. But I would argue, my beloved, if you, if you do it in tears, I'm not talking crocodile tears, I'm talking about your heart being truly broken, and when you communicate the full gospel, these bitter truths, if there are tears in your eyes, they will not only see your love for them, but they're gonna see your love for God. Who brings a message like this? Who testifies to such a hard truth if we don't truly love the truth giver, God himself? They will see your love for them and they'll see your love for God and God can use that to redeem their soul. Amen? Amen. All right. So we've seen the message is faithful. You don't have to doubt it. Guaranteed to take place. Number two, that it is a bitter, sweet message because it reveals both salvation and judgment at the exact same time. Last one, I got, I got one more for you. I want to talk about this message being dangerous. It is a dangerous message. Many churches and individual Christians, and maybe us now and certainly throughout the centuries, have refused to proclaim this message because when we do so, it brings pain and suffering. It's not just, oh, I don't want to tell my friends because they'll think ill of me, or I don't want to tell my boss because you know, I might not get the promotion. Throughout the centuries, and even today, in many places throughout the world, you proclaim this message, and you will suffer miserably, maybe even with your own life. Last point, point number three, it is a dangerous message. Look at chapter 11, verse 1. Then I, John is speaking, then I, was given a measuring rod like a staff, and I was told, rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there. So a measuring rod is, think of a measuring tape today. If you have a, a Mastercraft measuring tape and you use that to take measurements around your house. John's given a measuring rod and he's instructed to take some measurements uh, of the temple and the altar and those who are in it. Now again, we have the Old Testament to guide us through the book of Revelation. It is analogous. There was a man in the book of Ezekiel who was given a measuring rod, a measuring reed, to do the exact same thing, to measure the temple. And we're going to see when we get to Revelation 21, the temple of God, which, which is the church, it's his people, they are descending out of heaven. And as it's descending out of heaven, coming to earth, there's an angel measuring it again. Lots of measurements. Lots of measurements. You say, well, I've always found that confusing. Do they, do they not know what the size of it is? <clears throat> Our dispensational brothers and sisters believe that Revelation chapter 11 verse 1 is describing the real rebuilding of a physical temple. And these are going to be the measurements of that real temple that's going to be rebuilt in the city of Jerusalem at some point in time before Jesus comes again in glory. And so Revelation 11.1 1 is interpreted literally. It will be a physical temple, it will be a physical altar, and it will be with physical worshipers 
Christians or non-Christians, maybe Jews, depending upon your perspective, that will be sacrificing at those altars again. Now you say, now wait a minute. You're talking about a physical temple with a physical altar and real animal sacrifices being kicked up again? You say, well, I thought you preached clearly in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 10, that Jesus Christ was the ultimate sacrifice. No more animals, no more lambs, no more bulls, no more goats. And I did, which means there won't be a physical altar with animals being sacrificed because Christ is the ultimate sacrifice. Secondly, I I think that that interpretation is not very good because the temple under the new covenant we know to be whom? It's the church. It's the church. The temple of the living God, the dwelling place of God is by the Spirit in believers. And so again, Revelation 11, verse 1, it's apocalyptic genre. We're not talking, John was not given a real measuring rod, and he's not running around trying to measure some future to be temple or altar or people. Even the idea, how do you measure a worshiper? Well, you know, five, six, five, seven, you know, 120, 130 pounds, one, two, times a thousand, times a million. Not physical, symbolic. Symbolic. You, the people, the church, first. Corinthians 3.16, listen to what the Apostle Paul said. I don't believe he's in contradiction to John. He said, do you not know that you, speaking of the church, you are God's what? Say it. You are God's temple. And that God's spirit dwells in you. He said it again in Ephesians 2, verses 19 20. You are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household, growing into a holy temple in the Lord, being built together in a dwelling in a dwelling of God in the Spirit. And so the worshipers here that make up the church, the individual worshipers that together make up the body of Christ um, are being measured by God, not literally, but metaphorically. So what does it mean to be measured? I mean, uh, let's say it's not a physical temple. What is this, what is this measuring thing taking place? Again, we, we know this, the Old Testament, it's not a secret, it tells us this. It's symbolic. To be measured by God, listen very closely, to be measured by God was symbolic to have, having God's protection and provision on your life. In fact, in the Old Testament, the measuring by God was either a measurement of judgment or a measurement of protection. In, in Amos, Amos chapter 7 The Lord said, behold, I am setting a plumb line. I'm going to measure in the midst of my people. The high places of Isaac shall be made desolate and the sanctuaries of Israel shall be laid to waste. That's a measurement of judgment, God's saying. I'm bringing my wrath. But then in Ezekiel, we have another measurement, which is a measurement of preservation and protection. Ezekiel 42, chapter 42, verse 20. We're told that he measured the temple on all four sides, it had a wall around it, 500 cubits long, 500 cubits broad, not literally, to make a separation between the holy and the common, between the saved and the unsaved, between God's people and the Gentiles. So being measured here in Revelation 11 is a very simple idea. It means God's watch care, his sovereignty, his lordship over his people. That's it. That's all it's saying. That's all it's saying. Now this is exactly, I believe, what John would have needed to hear in light of this message. Here's a really, really hard message that you have to go tell people. Thank you, Lord. But I'm going to protect you. 
I'm gonna protect you and I'm gonna protect my church as you deliver this very difficult message. Verse two. We're promised protection. God measures us. We are safe. The temple of God, the people of God. But then the voice continues in verse two and it sounds a little bit confusing. The voice tells John, do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out for it is given over to the nations and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. So the area outside the temple um, became known as the court of the Gentiles. And here, that's where much of the commercial activity was taking place when Jesus went in and he cleared the temple. It was in that area. Um, John's told here, don't take a measurement. Now, if you're thinking literally, you're thinking, well, we want to know what the measurement of the temple and the altar and the people are, but we don't care about the outside of it. If it's, if it's metaphoric, it means what? The measurement of the temple is the protection of God's people. To not measure outside the temple in the court of the Gentiles means that God's protection is not upon them. God's wrath and God's judgment is upon them. So there's no measurement. The measurement is left out because they're given over to the nations, to the Gentiles. Now, those who believe that Revelation 11, 1 and 2 is talking about the temple of, of Herod's temple, its destruction in 70 AD, that's difficult to apply here because we're 20 years after that temple was destroyed. And again, those who think it's a futuristic temple, a physical temple that'll be rebuilt also doesn't align itself well with our understanding of the temple being the church itself. What we see in verses one and two is a very clear distinction between the saved and the unsaved. It's all that John is talking about here. God's people, those on the inner court, those part of the temple who are protected by God, and those in the outer court, those outside the temple, who are not measured by God, who are not protected, but will receive his wrath instead. And that aligns very, very well with the movement of chapter 10 and 11. Fits very nicely in the context of the passage. That those inside are measured by God, they're protected by God from what? From his eternal judgment. They will not be judged and receive his wrath. And those outside the temple, the unmeasured, do not receive his protection, but receive only his judgment and his wrath. But then when you get to the end of verse two, you think, well, wait a minute. Are we protected or are we not protected? Look at the latter part of verse two. It says, and they, speaking of the Gentiles in the outer court, those who refuse to be saved, they will trample the holy city. Now that's synonymous for God's people also. They will trample God's people for 42 months. And you think, well, wait a second. Are we protected or are we not protected? The answer is yes. It's yes. You are protected in some ways and you're not protected in others. I'll explain it in just a minute. 42 months. So here we go with numbers again. 42 months of trampling. That's 42 months of those outside the temple, Gentiles, persecuting the church. Look at verse three. We'll, we'll hit that next week. That's the same exact number of days. 42 months equals 1,260 days. So it's the same number, just expressed differently. When we get to Revelation chapter 12, verse 14, we're gonna hear about times, times, and a half. We heard about that in Daniel chapter seven. That's the exact same period of time, 42 months, 1,260 days. And then we're all, we also know from Daniel uh, that it's three and a half years. Well, which one is it? Well, here's the good thing. It's all the same amount of time, and it's all metaphoric. 
the, the 42 months, the 1,260 days, the times, times, and a half, the three and a half years, it's all the same period of time. And it all represents the time between Jesus' resurrection, ascension, and his coming again in glory. It's the time that we've been talking about for the last several weeks now in the book of Revelation. This time when what? When the church will experience persecution and hardship from those that are outside the temple. From the Gentiles who will bring persecution, who will what? Trample underfoot believers. That's all it's saying. That during the time between Christ, his first advent and his second advent, the world will persecute the church. Simple teaching. Simple to understand, but probably difficult to hear. In the next several weeks, my beloved, John's going to be given details about how this persecution will unfold. And Satan will play an active role, and the beast will play an active role, and the world and the allies will play an active role in the persecution and the trampling of the church, of you, God's people. You say, well, again, that doesn't sound like God's protecting us. It is. The protection that God provides for his people is protection from eternal wrath and the judgment that is to come. It is not necessarily protection from the world coming against the church. In fact, it says here that God's going to allow that for 42 months, for the period of time between the first and second coming of Christ, which means we as a church should expect it. We should expect it. Many people in many countries, churches in other countries, they receive that persecution. They get it. We get it a little bit here. We had some persecution during COVID, and it was like, I can't believe this is happening. I can't believe the world is preventing us from meeting on a Sunday. That was persecution, no doubt. But I would say that's minuscule by comparison to what our brothers and sisters are being experiencing even this hour. God is letting us know in advance, don't be shocked. You'll be persecuted, you'll be trampled by the world, but he says, I will what? I will protect my people. I will protect you so that you will never forsake the faith. You will never leave the covenant. So where does that leave us as we close? On the one hand, I'm told, we're being told to be faithful messengers of this bitter, sweet, dangerous message that we want to explain the full gospel message to an angry, Christ-hating world. And at the same time, you're telling me that as I do this, that I'm gonna be trampled by non-believers. What power do I have? I wanna give you two as I close, and I want you to listen with all your might lest you remain silent with the apostolic message. We have God's presence and we have his real immediate power to do the very hard work of being apostolic messengers. First, I wanna show you, and these are from the text. Look, the measuring of the temple, the altar, and the worshipers in verse one. It doesn't just convey God's protection of his people that we won't suffer eternal wrath and damnation. It also conveys his presence amongst his people. You say, where am I getting that? In Ezekiel 42, where a parallel measurement was taking place of the temple, it's followed in Ezekiel 43 with God what? With God descending upon the temple and being with his people. Listen to this. This is from Ezekiel 43. After the temple was measured, the glory of the Lord filled the temple. I heard one speaking to me out of the temple. It's God. Ezekiel's hearing this. And he said to me, son of man, this is the place of my throne where I will dwell in the midst of the people Israel. When Jesus Christ took on flesh and became a man, believers called him what? Emmanuel, God with us. 
when he ascended the cross and he paid for our sins in full, he did so to bring us back into a right relationship with the living God, back into favor with God. No longer enemies, but now friends. No longer outside, but inside the kingdom as sons and daughters. And when Christ ascended into heaven, what did he do? He and the Father together sent the Holy Spirit to dwell where? To dwell in you. Christ, God, with you. In other words, my beloved, this promise of measurement, measure protection for you, God is not saying that you will not suffer temporally here. You, you will, if you're going to pursue Christ, if you're going to declare this message, you will suffer. But he is saying, I am with you in the midst of the suffering. When you proclaim it, I am there. When you're persecuted, I am there. Which means we can, we can be strong and, and testify truthfully to this bittersweet, difficult message because Christ, through the Spirit, is truly, truly with us. You're not ever, ever doing it alone. We feel like that, though, don't we? We remain silent. So if I say this, but Christ is there. You know, the, the son who won't jump into the pool because he's afraid. Dad gets in the pool and what? The son then jumps in because dad's there. He's courageous. The daughter who is reluctant to play her piano recital on stage looks out and sees her dad in the audience and she plays the piano because dad is there. My beloved, it's the same for us. When you're fearful of the consequences of the full gospel being presented to your family and friends, know that Christ is with you in that moment. When you are being a faithful saint at work and you're being pressed, your consciousness is being pressed to speak the full truth in love, know that God is with you. You can trust him in that. You can trust him. But there's also great power God is able to protect us, his holy city, from the wrath to come, from the permanent eternal harm that we fear most because he allowed the world to do what? To trample the king of the city. Did he not? God the Father allowed the world to trample his son perfectly. Isaiah chapter 53, a passage you know well, describes the trampling of Christ. He, Jesus, was despised and rejected by men. He was a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. He was pierced for our transgressions upon the cross. He was crushed for our iniquities upon the cross. Upon him was what the chastisement that brought us peace. And by his wounds we are what? We are healed. You are saved. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. The consequences, my beloved, of every sin, of every evil deed and every dishonoring thought and every God-hating word that's ever come out of your mouth was received in full by Christ on the cross. And if you have put your faith in him that he is your substitute, which means God is able to protect you from the day of wrath to come. He's able to protect you perfectly. And with that protection, my beloved, if it's true that at this very moment the righteousness of Christ has been imputed to you because your sins have been imputed to Jesus and at this moment you are truly untouchable in Christ, 
then you can be bold in the proclamation of this difficult message. Can you not? If that's true, if you cannot be touched because the protection of God is upon you because the blood of Christ has secured your soul, then the world can trample you. They can. The world may come and they may, they may take your career. They may take your house. They may take your finances. They may take your wife and your children. They may come after all that is precious to you. But ultimately, they cannot hurt you. You are untouchable because nothing can separate you from the love of God you have in Christ. And if that's true, my beloved, if it's true that Christ has guaranteed you passage through the judgment into the throne room of God, then that means we can, I truly believe, that with the presence of God and the power of God, we can bring this faithful, bittersweet, difficult message to all those in our mission field. We can. They're there. You know who they are. We can take this message, now that we understand it, to this dying world so they might hear the full truth. They might know that apart from Christ, they will perish. And instead of perishing now, they too can turn and repent and believe. Just like you, someone told you, oh, what beautiful feet they had. Someone told you when they brought you that message. This world has, is, and will continue to be judged by the living God. We have the message of hope. The only question for us as a church and you individually is, will you proclaim it? Will you tell those who do not know so they too can know and live? Let me, I'm going to pray right now that, that I will and that you will individually and that we as a church will be faithful apostolic messengers to take this faithful, bittersweet, difficult message to all of us that we know, maybe even this week. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, because you have removed the greatest fear, which is your judgment and eternal damnation from your people, we need not be afraid of being trampled by this world. We know, Father, the world has, is, and will continue to come against your church. It has for 2,000 years, and it will continue until Christ comes again. It will bring pain. It will bring suffering. It will bring persecution for our fidelity to you. But we can. We can remain faithful to Christ and the gospel because the world has no power over us. Christ has defeated Satan, he has defeated sin, he's defeated death, and he's defeated all the persecution the world can bring. So those of us who are united in Christ, we can proclaim the full gospel message. We can be bold, and we can be courageous, because you are with us, and you have empowered us. Father, do that here with our families, you know who they are. With our friends, you know who they are. And in our greater mission field, all those that we are in contact with, Lord, if they have not heard the gospel, let them hear it from our mouths. Lord, let us take in this little scroll. Let us eat it like John did. And although it is bittersweet, Father, I pray you would open our mouths that we would no longer be silent, that we would be a proclaiming people, proclaiming your glory. Do this, Father, for your glory, I pray. Do it for all those that are unsaved 
in our lives. Do it for Christ. He is worthy. In his name, amen.